0: Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com
1: rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to a special edition of True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Everyone in the world of true crime has a story to tell about a case that they worked on or that maybe they lived through. Some are high profile, some you have never heard of, but they are all fascinating. Today's case is about the kidnapping and murder of a child that changed laws and paved the way for families of crime victims to become strong advocates for justice. In October of 1993, a 12-year-old girl named Polly Klass was abducted from her bedroom by a complete stranger who broke into the house as her mother slept in the other room. It happened in the small Northern California town of Petaluma. This crime happened just as cell phones and the internet were emerging. People didn't have home security cameras and there was no DNA testing and there was no national criminal database like the one we have now. Polly's killer was a felon with a long criminal history who was back out on the streets when this happened but finding him and ultimately Polly's body were the result of old-fashioned detective work. This was the biggest case of its kind at the time, and I covered it as a reporter for Channel 7 KGO in San Francisco. But even when you cover such a huge case, you don't really understand it fully or or everything that was going on at the time. But a new book by Kim Cross, a New York Times bestselling author and journalist, is rich with details and that much needed context. Kim is the author of In Light of All Darkness, the definitive work on the investigation into the kidnapping of Polly Class. with unrestricted access to the files and the recordings from the prosecutor who tried this case. Welcome, Kim. We're so excited to have you on the program.
0: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here.
1: You released your book on the 30th anniversary of Polly's kidnapping and murder, and I think uh, for me as a journalist, to get access to things and documents is the most important thing. And you got the access because of your relationship with the prosecutor and how that opened doors for you. You want to share a little bit about that before we talk about the case?
0: Sure. It was my relationship with the prosecutor, but even more importantly, with the case agent, the FBI case agent who was in charge of the case. And he is my father-in-law. His name is Eddie Fryer. and I've been married to Eddie Jr. for uh, 20 years now, and because of my relationship with Eddie Sr., he opened doors to people who would have never talked to another journalist, and he introduced me to Greg Jacobs, a prosecuting attorney who uh, gave me unrestricted access to all of his files. And because of Eddie and Greg, who introduced me to the investigators from the FBI agents to the Petaluma police detectives to um, witnesses they, they talked to me and they recounted their memories, but they also gave me banker's boxes of files, uh, things that I probably could not have even acquired with a Freedom of Information Act request. And because of that, I felt really compelled to tell the story which had not been documented in a book of record before.
1: I think sometimes to fully tell a story, there has to be trust. And for reporters in particular, you know, your reputation is sometimes what opens the door and and people just have to have a feeling about you. So I really can understand how important it was for the people involved in this case, which was part of a massive media frenzy at the time. And even past that, that I think that that's very important that people feel safe. And and because there are going to be uncomfortable moments when you review a case, it's never perfect. There are always errors. You wish that maybe you had known certain things or done things differently, which I know we're going to discuss. But I think in order to have that kind of a candid conversation, there has to be some level of trust because you have to tell the full story and it isn't it isn't going to be easy and it certainly isn't going to be pretty because of the subject matter.
0: Exactly. I feel like trust is the most important thing. And that really was, I think, the basis for why this book was um, why I was able to do this book. I approached all of the sources ahead of time and said, you know, I don't want this to be a puff piece for the FBI. This is not going to be propaganda. I want to be really honest about the errors that were made because of those errors. Lessons were learned that actually led to beneficial changes that changed the system, that improved the way we search for and find missing people, that improved the way the FBI solves crimes, Um, not just kidnappings, but other crimes. And so I said, I, you know, I don't want to. Uh, I don't wanna throw anyone under the bus, but we have to be really honest with each other. And um, I wanted to give people uh, a degree of agency in which they could they could trust me to listen to what really happened, but also to get the context right because there's so much context in this case that I think was um, missed in a lot of the reporting that happened as it was unfolding. Understandably, when you're doing spot news reporting, um, it's hard to have that context that really comes together, um, I think in retrospect and so i worked really hard to deserve the trust that they invested in me and then i really um you know went back and fact checked everything heavily including memories including my father-in-law and um and i think that they appreciated and respected that and i uh, was able to corroborate both Different memories um, from different sources who are in the same place and remember things slightly differently with all of the banker's boxes of documents in which those details were documented um, in 1993, very soon after it happened. And it really taught me a lot about not only trust, but the um, just the fallibility of memory. You know, memory can erode over time. We're not video cameras and memory can be a little bit warped and distorted by emotion and the intensity of, of trauma. And so that was um, that was really an element of, of recording this book and bringing it all together.
1: My recollection of the time, and we are going to get into the details of the case, but my recollection of the time was of a, a community and a family that mobilized in a way that I, as a young reporter, had never seen. And frankly, I don't believe we had seen anything like this in, in the covering of cases. They, uh, it, it's like, It's like they mobilized an entire army of volunteers and people just showed up because these things just don't happen is and really stranger abductions are are really very rare very rare and then the idea that someone would literally pluck a child from her home was very hard for a lot of people to even accept at the time, and there were all sorts of rumors going around until they finally had a suspect. Um, about really, there's no way that this really could have happened. And and when you're listening to the mom's 911 call, because she really didn't, she didn't have a sense of urgency with her at the time. Because what people don't know is that she had not been feeling well. She had a migraine. She had taken some medication, I guess, a sleeping aid. So she was. Groggy and kind of out of it as she's being woken um, to this shocking news, but you always take those nine one one calls and in because it's the first documentation of a crime, if you will, in real time of what's <laughs> happening. And I just remember this community center that became the focus where all the volunteers were manning phones, um, you know, getting posters out everywhere. It, it was really incredible. I I remember interviewing Mark her dad Mark class practically every day during this time period because you would go there to do your interviews and it it was surreal you know that the whole family was on the national news all the time I think the fact that the family in their own way they each became advocates and had a very strong voice for decades to come. And I always thought that that was very important and and a legacy from this horrific crime. And things did change. I think in the legal system, I think a a lot has changed. But of course, no matter what change and what good comes of a really horrible situation, at the end of the day, a 12 year old girl was murdered. And there's, there's never really any justice. Real, true justice for that.
0: Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So, Kim, let, let's talk about the crime, um, how it occurred, how it unfolded, and, and the details of the investigation, which you provide that I think are fascinating. I had no idea of any of this, really. Also, I think because a lot wasn't discussed. Right.
0: Okay, I'll start with the abduction. So on October 1st, 1993, 12-year-old Polly Class was having a slumber party at her house with two friends named Kate and Jillian. They had planned the slumber party at school, and Polly had asked her mom if she could have two friends over, which was very special. And her mom said, yes, if, uh, if you clean your room. And so Polly had vacuumed her room and picked up, and she had put her vacuum cleaner back where it lived on a surface porch that was behind the kitchen and between um, basically the kitchen and the, the back door to the house. And it is believed that she may have forgotten to lock the door when that happened. So during the slumber party, um, Eve Nickel, Polly's mom, came in and told the girls to kind of keep it down. Don't stay up too late. She went to bed. She, took, um, she had a migraine and she took a sleeping aid and fell asleep in the room next door. And around 1030, the girls were playing a board game on the floor and Polly stood up to go get uh, sleeping bags from the family room. And when she opened the door to her room in the hallway, there was standing a strange man dressed all in black and he had a knife in one hand. And he came into the room and he said to the girls, don't scream or I'll slit your throats. And so with that, he said, don't look at me. And he wasn't yelling. And he, he he actually was behaving in such a way that Kate and Jillian, Polly's friends, thought it might be a joke. Um, the girls were known to prank each other. They loved to have slumber parties and play with the pranks on each other. And both Kate and Jillian uh, recalled in their interviews having a moment where they thought, is this a joke? This is a really good one, you know. And so they they kind of giggled and he told them to lay face down on the floor. So they did. And he he tied their wrists behind their back. He put a pillowcase over their heads and he gagged them. And then he told Kate and Jillian to count to 1,000 and that by the time they got to 1,000, Polly would be back. And then he took Polly away. So after counting to, they can't remember exactly, uh, but not not quite 1,000, Kate and Jillian untied themselves. And they ran into the bedroom next door and woke Polly's mother, Eve. And Eve sort of groggily surfaced from a deep sleep. And she was very confused, trying to figure out what's happening. She thought maybe the girls might be pranking as well, um, but very quickly they convinced her, no, this is not a joke. She's been taken. They ran through their house looking for her, couldn't find her, and called nine one one. In the nine one one call, um, you can tell that Eve is very disoriented and confused. Her voice is sort of of weak, and she's she's trying to explain what had happened. She puts Kate on. And frankly,
1: on the- it's it's. Not very convincing because there's a lack of urgency, and she's not making sense. Because if you were to just discover that your child had been abducted, you, you know, you'd be up on the ceiling screaming. Right. Um, but it's it's
0: it's very confusing, and when you're rousing from sleep and and still trying to process what's going on, you can hear that confusion in her voice. Yeah. Um, Within four minutes of the call, the first deputy from Petaluma PD was on the scene, Danny Fish, and behind him, Vale Bellow, who became kind of the incident commander that night. And um, they very quickly looked through the house and saw that nothing appeared to be ransacked. The girl's room was a little bit messy, and they found they saw ligatures on the floor and they saw cut Nintendo cords where he had actually used Nintendo cords to tie over white bindings to sort of double bind their wrists. And one of the detectives, Larry Pelton, you know, had an inkling that this was not a joke because kids don't cut their Nintendo cords for a joke.
1: Absolutely not. They were very expensive at the time. Very A lot of kids didn't have them. So, no, there's no way it's too valuable a thing to cut. It's just logic. That's right.
0: However, um, Kate and Jillian were very calm, and they were they were so calm and articulate and mature that it actually raised some skepticism and doubt among the investigators, who I think were um, both processing the fact that they weren't freaking out. They were very articulate and calm. I listened to their their interviews. I had a, I found tapes in the files, and it is it's remarkable how calm they are and how logical and sensible they are. And so the detectives thought. Um, this might be a, this must be a joke, maybe Polly's run off with a boy and they're covering for her, or or there's got to be some other explanation. And a lot of the investigators themselves had grown up in Petaluma, which was the kind of place where you move to raise kids in a safe place. And uh, this doesn't happen in our town. Um, this is a town that averaged less than one murder a year. And so the thought that someone could brazenly come into a house where there's a parent present and take a child was really unthinkable. And as you said,
1: it's just hard to believe that anyone could pull that off with two other girls present in the room and the parent in the other room. It seemed as a reporter at the time, everyone was very suspicious and didn't believe the story, right? The cops didn't believe the story and the reporters didn't believe the story. Right. Because it doesn't normally happen that way. Most abductions
0: are a parental custody case or um, abduction by someone who is known to the family or the child. Um, Stranger abductions are very, very rare. But a stranger abduction from the home is the rarest of all. And it just was it was so unusual that kidnapping experts who had worked a number of kidnapping cases in the Bay Area, of which there were actually a lot of unsolved cases, they came into this one and thought this, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't add up. This doesn't, it doesn't happen this way. And so for um, the first week or so of the case, there was an increasing amount of skepticism and doubt. And when they interviewed Kate and Jillian separately, as they should, um, there were minor uh, incongruencies between their two accounts, really, really minor, but because of those inconsistencies, they, they doubted the girls. And because of that, the interviews got more and more like interrogations, which at the time was um, one of the biggest mistakes of the case. When my father-in-law Eddie teaches this case as he has for 30 years, as a case study to train new investigators, that's one of the first things he said, is this was the biggest mistake of the case is how we treated those girls. Um, at the time, there there was no such thing as a child and adolescent forensic interviewer, and now CAFEs are, are common, but at Very the ta-
1: common, and for those of you who, who don't know what this reference is about is that there is now, um, the protocol is that children who are victims and witnesses of these crimes get interviewed one time, it is videotaped, generally one time, um, to not not to further traumatize the child with experts in a facility designated for these kinds of interviews to try and get the child to open up, tell what they know, but most importantly, not to further traumatize the children. And in this case, these these girls were. They really were.
0: They really were. And it caused lasting trauma. Um, mm-hmm. Now they would do it in a soft room, which looks like a, a living room and has paintings on the walls and and sofas instead of, you know, what, what probably was an interrogation room at the time. And they polygraphed um, the girls, didn't they? They polygraphed. Yes, they did. And that was, I think that was one of the most damaging moments. And, you know, on top of the trauma of seeing their best friend abducted, and le- later learning that she had been killed um the the way they were treated and mistrusted and led to even doubt their own memory that was one of the most damaging things i think that they they experienced as they shared with me
1: yeah i agree with you i think we learned a lot about that from right. that right
0: very unfortunate but things did change as a result from it and and a lot was learned from it
1: so in that early time in the, in the that first week for example where It's not adding up for the police. Mm. It's not adding up for the journalists. The whole thing doesn't make any sense. Things happened which were believed to have been unrelated, Mm. but later we found out were not. So, Kim, I'm going to take your lead on this. Do you want to continue telling the case as it unfolded, or do you want to tell what was happening parallel at the time that no one knew?
0: Um, it's interesting because I struggled with the, the sequence of revelation in the book of, do I tell the reader this now, or do mm-hmm. I tell them two months later after there, there have been two months of no great leads when they finally find it, find the break in the case. And I think, um, I ended up telling them, uh, I used the dramatic irony approach and I told them while the investigators didn't know. Mm -hmm. So um, about an hour after Polly was abducted from her home, um, about an hour away in a part of Sonoma um, in in wine country, but up a long uh, gravel driveway that was kind of very, very rural in, in a wooded area, very dark, there was a trespasser was discovered on the property of a woman who was a chef a beloved Sonoma chef named Dana Jaffe. Dana had come home from her shift at the restaurant and she went to relieve her babysitter and the babysitter left and driving down this dark, steep driveway through the woods, she encountered a man who appeared to be stuck in a ditch. It was a white Pinto and the man was outside of his vehicle and he um, flagged her down and ran over and she locked the door, but cracked the window. And he sort of put his fingers in the window and she said, you know, what are you doing here? This is private property. He said, I know I'm stuck, you know, get out of the car and help me. And she said, forget that. Stepped on the gas, drove into town, went to a payphone. which remember, this is 1993. There were uh, cell phones were very, very unusual and brick like. And uh, so she went to a payphone. It ate her quarter. She used a calling card. If you remember those, her parents oh, calling. Completely to dial um, Dana and say, there's a creepy guy on your property. I'm worried about you. You guys got to get out there. So Dana had a 12-year-old girl at the time. Dana put her daughter in the car, grabbed a baseball bat, jumped in the car, and uh, drove out on the way down her driveway, she saw the Pinto, but she did not see a person. And so um, she thought, I wonder where he is and what he's doing. So she kept driving, drove into town, used a pay phone, called 911, and was told it's a really busy night. We can send some people, but it's going to be a minute. So she said, I don't feel comfortable going home. She stopped um, on the highway uh, by Pythian Road and said, I'm going to wait there for the deputies. So um, within, I don't know, some minutes, Two deputies pull up and she leads them back to the stuck pinto. The man is there and he um he's acting kind of nonchalant in that he he looks as if he's expecting them, um, but he also is acting a little weird. He has Russian twigs in his hair and beard and is acting a little bit erratic. And she says, you know, these these deputies are going to help you. I'm I'm going home. And so she drives home. The two deputies um could sense they 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 had a good instinct that something was not right. They didn't have any probable cause to search his car so they asked permission and he said yes. They searched the Pinto and they didn't find anything suspicious. They found bags of clothes and some unopened cans of beer. When they found the beer, he strangely pulled out, you know, opened one and started drinking it. They made him pour it out. Uh one Who of does the Does this
1: in front of cops when I mean and he's trespassing. He's on someone's private property. Right. He's stuck.
0: Oh my lord. Right. Um, interestingly, there were a lot of misreported things about this incident. Um, people who were very close to the case, even related to investigators who worked the case, would say to me things like, I can't believe that they didn't open the trunk and check the trunk and she was in the trunk all along. And I said, no, there was no trunk. It was a hatchback. They did search the car. She was not there. They didn't find any probable cause. And they, he wasn't breaking any laws for which they could arrest him. And let you the get him thing. on trespassing so interestingly no um i learned and i didn't know this but um it was explained to me that uh, to be arrested for trespassing you have to have the property owner the property owner has to want them trespassing and they have to actually file a citizen's arrest and only then could do do they have the legal capacity to arrest them and i i didn't know that and most people didn't and so this was um but i want to also add that you know dana jaffe doesn't remember them asking her, do you want to file a citizen's arrest? Uh, She just remembers, you know, saying like, I just, I just want him gone. I don't want him, you know, at that point, he's just a trespasser. I don't want to have this guy arrested for trespassing, but I just want him off my property, just get him gone. And so um, I I don't know, you know, the, the deputies remembered, or at least one of the deputies I spoke with remembered having that conversation about the citizen's arrest, Dana does not remember this. So this was one of the things I had to note that, you know, the memories didn't line up. Regardless, I did fact check it. And, and that was the law that they they couldn't arrest him. So they um, they ended up driving up to Dana's house and borrowing a chain to kind of help get the the Pinto unstuck. And they could tell that something was weird. They you know, they searched him. They didn't find anything but a flashlight. Um, but they, they were also, um, it was a busy night. I think there had been a, a drive-by shooting somewhere else in the county. And so they had other things to respond to. And after 38 minutes, they let him, they, they escorted him off the property and moved on.
1: So, so what's important here is that this man turned out to be Richard Allen Davis. A right. Career criminal mm-hmm. who had been released something like six months earlier. That's right. And they did run his <laughs> license. His driver's license but he didn't have any active warrants and they didn't do any criminal background check i don't know why you would
0: well they didn't have the ability of doing that they didn't have the computers in the cars that they have today so they what they could do and typically did do is they ran the plates the car was not stolen and uh they uh they asked for his license called it into dispatch there were no warrants out for his arrest so um they were not able to see his rap sheet which was uh, many pages long and included kidnapping of adult women and attempted rape of adult women. And so this is,
1: and the reason all of this is incredibly important, the connection wasn't made that night. Right. So you have a child that's been kidnapped, right? Right. It was not broadcast, as they say, over the radio. So these two responding officers who were dealing with Richard Allen Davis, who turns out to be the killer, right. didn't know a child had been abducted and they should maybe be looking at this guy with a second, with a different set of eyes. Exactly. And
0: this is another thing that was uh, commonly misreported at the time. Um, the word was that they had the radio tuned to a different station um, than the one on which the All Points Bulletin was broadcast. That's incorrect. What happened was when Petaluma PD issued an all points bulletin or a be on the lookout, which is um, an alert that gets usually uh, it's it's sort of an internal fax that goes to uh, agencies in the area. They put on the dispatch, um, not for media release, because they weren't ready for it to get out to the media yet. Um, In those days, and I remember being a cop reporter or an intern reporter in those days when a cop reporter would carry a police scanner in in your purse and so that you could hear all of the dispatch and then get to the news very quickly. They didn't want it to get out to the media just yet because it was still the early hours and they didn't want the media descending on um, Petaluma as they later would. And so they wrote not for media release. And when it went out to the Sonoma County Sheriff's Office, the dispatcher there read that and said, okay, I better not broadcast this. And so it was not broadcast. That APB went out during the 38 minute encounter in which the two deputies um, were interacting with the suspect, with Richard Allen Davis.
1: So you've clarified the point that Mm -hmm. they did check the car, Mm -hmm. Polly wasn't in there, there wasn't anything in there that indicated to them at the time um, that a crime had been committed because they Mm -hmm. have no knowledge of what's happened at Polly's house. Didn't Richard Allen say later that Polly was literally there up on a hill watching as all of this was going on. Do we know if Polly was alive at the time that the cops intercepted him on the private property?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. And that's a question a lot of people would really love to know for sure. Um, Richard Allen Davis, in his interviews, and even later in, in I read a uh, A letter he had written in prison to his prison girlfriend in another prison uh, about this years later when he was incarcerated for this crime. And even then, in that letter, he maintained that he had walked her up and sort of hidden her on a hillside in the trees. And that when he was having that encounter with the deputies, that she was just sitting there um, awake And that he was then escorted off the the property by the deputies. And he waited for a little bit and then turned around and drove back and got her. And he said that as he was returning and walking up the hill, that she said, You know, I thought you left me. Um, Most of the investigators who I interviewed about that and thought and and asked, Do you think that's true? including the, the district attorney who prosecuted, don't believe that she was alive. Um, when I went to report that and try to answer the question for myself, I parked my car Well, I, I visited with Dana Jaffe, um, this property, and the deputies had their cars parked close to a gate. The gate is still there. I visited again at night uh, on a night when the moon was as it was that night, almost full, not quite full. And I parked my car in such a way that the deputy's cars would have been parked. And I left my lights on. Their lights were on, their radios, the car was still running and the radio, um, the dispatch radio was, was audible. And so I, I walked up to the spot where Dana Jaffe would later find suspicious items, which um, would then lead him to the spot where they believe that something happened. And I stood there with the the you know the headlights on. And it was a lot closer than I imagined in my mind after looking at the crime scene diagrams and reading all the reports. I couldn't believe how close it was and how bright my car lights were and how loud my engine was. Granted, um, the the landscape has changed a bit since then. There's been major fires. So when I stood there, a lot of the vegetation wasn't there. But even then, it was so close. I, I, I I counted the steps. And in my memory, I want to say it was 30 steps from the place where she would have been hiding, not hiding or waiting to the driveway road. And then about another 30 paces from there to the car. That's not very far. And in, you know, on a dark night, it it would have been possible to to hear the car, to hear the voices, to hear the radio dispatch, to see the lights. And you have to ask you know, is it possible that someone could be so incapacitated with fear that they wouldn't call out? I guess that's possible. Um, Knowing what we know about Polly, that she was a spunky kid, that her father had, you know, taught her to, to, you know, to watch out for herself. That's a question that I think the reader, you know, readers have to ask themselves. Um, I try not to speculate at all in the book, Mm -hmm. but I would say that most of the people I interview um, don't believe that she was alive at that time. Because
1: had she been alive, she probably would have screamed. I think what is quite likely, because Polly's body was not disposed there. It was actually disposed in Cloverdale, which would be north, which Mm -hmm. was not. This was Santa Rosa, where the Pinto, where the car was, where this incident happened. And and so he was on his way to Cloverdale, which means he had to have transport. He hadn't. He hadn't dumped her body yet. He hadn't done that yet. So likely Polly was with him. The question is, was she alive or dead when the police came to get the guy who was stuck in the in the mud right. off the property?
0: Oh my right. god. Most people believe that she wasn't, that when um after he was escorted away, he went back to then get her body because there would have been a record of him being there. And because there was, they didn't do a police report, but they had a field incident report that then allowed them later to establish his identity.
1: So at this point, you know, basically everything's within an hour of everything, but these two police departments, these, these investigators, no one knows about really the other. And so that is just an unusual incident with a man stuck on someone's property. And so, The focus goes back to Polly. The case becomes much bigger, starts getting more attention and weeks go by, weeks go by and there, there really are no breaks, right? There's not like any information that sheds light, which means now there's more intense focus on the father and the girls and they're being interrogated.
0: Mm-hmm. So pretty, um, pretty quickly after a certain number of interviews, the girls were, um, well, the girl's parents said, we're done with you. You've traumatized them. We're, we're done with this investigation. And, um, my father-in-law actually realized what had happened and, um, went and apologized to the girls with teddy bears and flowers and said, we're, we're so sorry. We, you know, we shouldn't have done that. And the girls were brought back in for a video reenactment in which they were trusted. And so, um, The girls were back on board. And meanwhile, um, the volunteers, I want to switch gears for a minute and talk about the volunteers. As you mentioned, one of the things that made this case really remarkable was the number of people who came out of the woodwork to help. They had more than 4,000 volunteers over the course of this two-month investigation come out and they um, were manning phones. They created their own tip line. They were literally going out and searching barns and fields and wooded areas and the river. They were helping the investigators, they they provided a lot of manpower. And meanwhile, um, again, this was back before the internet, this was 1993, I remember my getting my first AOL CD in 1994, <laughs> the internet was really just kind of, you know, nascent as far as public access to it. And um, so they were photocopying um, flyers and they would photocopy these, these eight and a half by 11 flyers and tack them up all over town. And at some point, you know, every t- every telephone pole and every storefront window had not just one flyer, but multiple flyers. And they would drive to a truck stop and hand them to a long haul truck driver and say, when you get to Oregon, would you put these up? And there was a a tech reporter named Larry Maggot who um, Knew how to get it posted on CompuServe and one of the the early ISPs. It's believed that this was the first time a missing person flyer was transmitted by fax and by ISP. And at, at, before it was sent and done, there were as many as eight million flyers distributed as, as far as China. So the public really
1: got involved, and everyone media- knew Polly was missing. I mean, I, I can as as a reporter at that time in the Bay Area, everyone knew what Polly looked like. And everyone knew that Polly was missing and they were looking for her. There was no question about it.
0: Exactly. Um, and the other interesting thing is the the media coverage was so intense. You were yeah. part of it. And I wanted to ask you, you were a, a reporter in the Bay Area. What was it like trying to fight for the scoop in those days with na- the national media was camped out all over Petaluma? What was that like?
1: Um, so, you know, the local reporters, which I was one of many, you're there every single day. And yes, the network does come in and they kind of push you out of the way or they take your resources. It's just the reality of working. But so the station I worked for was actually owned by ABC. So ABC News and the TV station, even though we were the local reporters, were all one. And the network bureau was in our building. We were on Front Street at the time in San Francisco. So, um you know, we would share resources all the time, but of course the national news would always get the scoop, like when, you know, the family would sit down with Good Morning America um, and it, you know, on a big panel discussion. So back then, remember, remember mm-hmm. there, there was no internet, there was no TMZ, there was none of that. So you got your news by watching, listening to the radio um, and the newspaper. I mean, that was really it. And the magazines were very big back then like a people magazine and you know all of that was still huge and this was still the the dominant case um you know what i think with a case like this every day whatever the update is there was always someone to talk to you i don't i mean the scoop how what could the scoop be in this Right. You were never going to get a scoop. A child. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Practically speaking, you got bigfooted by the networks. As far as you'd get your position bumped, you'd get. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Um, but I think sc- there really weren't. There scoops. wasn't a scoop to be had for two no. months. So. No, there was nothing. That's what just it-, it. There was nothing, and you couldn't report the rumors and the innuendo, which you know, I've said is the father, Mark Klass, a lot there was a lot of suspicion on him and he took a polygraph as well. Um, and he would even um, be very upfront about how, I know the police think I'm suspicious. You know, everyone was under suspicion because none of this made sense. Children oh. do not get plucked from their bedrooms. It just doesn't happen. It happens oh. so infrequently. So how was it possible that it happened in this case? Where is she? And no one knew anything, nobody saw anything. How is this possible? And so, I mean, one of the things that happened at that time, you know, you asked me what my memories are, and I I have unusual memories. Like, the other thing you need to remember is at that time, Winona Ryder, the actress from like Stranger Things, she plays the mom in Stranger Things for much of our audience, back then, she was it. She was the big name. So Winona Ryder was from Petaluma, not only did she donate money, you know, to the Help Find Polly cause, but she gave her time. She did interviews. She went to the volunteer center. She saw herself in Polly. And, and you know, this also paved the way. We didn't see this. We didn't see celebrities right. get involved in crimes. But yeah. Winona did at the time. And she elevated the coverage of mm-hmm. Polly's case.
0: Um, I wanted to jump in and talk about though the, the importance of the media and the media. It was sort of like this, the symbiotic relationship between the investigation, the media and the volunteers. So there were um, several volunteer leaders who had worked in the media or in entertainment in some way. So Joanne Gardner and Gaynelle Rogers were two women friends, single moms of, daughters who were young and they both came out of the woodwork to to help and they came as volunteers but they they realized we're going to use our skills to help the volunteers because they needed to organize um you know and and protect the family from the media but also keep feeding the ma- the media stories when the investigators were saying like we don't have any new leads for you we don't have any news for you and this is important because at the time, they were, um, there. you know, there was a hotline, as we talked about, where the public could pa- call in tips. And these flyers are going out saying, if you see anything, please call it in and, and let us know. And the flyers had sketches, um, forensic sketches of the kidnapper based on the girls working, had worked with two different sketch artists. And so there was a face and they were trying to look for this, this, this man with heavily lidded eyes and a salt and pepper beard. And while the Police were not able to give the media, um, you know, any good l- new leads. The volunteer coordinators knew they could give the media a story about the volunteers. They could say, like, look at what we're doing today. The Oakland A's just came out to sign baseballs to, to raise money. So there were fundraisers going on. Winona Ryder comes home to Petaluma because Polly um, loved acting and went to, you know, one of the same schools as Winona. And so Winona came and she said, I want to offer a million dollar reward for information leading to the kidnapper. Um, The investigators actually said, whoa, 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 a million dollars is a little too much. We'll get kind of crazy people coming out of the woodwork. How about two hundred thousand dollars? She said done. And so she did press conferences because she knew too the power of. If the story stays alive in the media, the public will remember and they will keep paying attention. They will look for you know, bearded guys. They will keep feeding tips to the investigators. And during the 64, 65 day investigation, they had 60,000 tips and 12,000 working investigations based largely on what was coming in from the public. And ultimately it was a lead from someone, a citizen that led to the break in the case. But you're right, that um that involvement of the media was really important. The other interesting thing is Winona had broken up with Johnny Depp and was dating Dave Perner, who was the lead singer for the band Soul Asylum. Soul Asylum, before Polly was kidnapped, had just released a video for run- Runaway Train. And that runaway train video featured the pictures and names of missing kids. They had worked with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, Nick Mick, had worked with um, the director to give them current um, you know, faces of kids who are her missing. And they actually, Dave Perner had, had Polly edited into that video. And because of that video, by the way, a lot of kids were found, including p- kids who didn't really want to be found because they were wonder but, but again,
1: remember, there was yeah. no social media back then. You couldn't right. just release a video and photos and have the world see it. It didn't work that way back then. I mean, when you mentioned the whole barely had cell phones, I remember it was about that time I finally bought my first cell phone the thing was a giant brick with an antenna that like never worked but our every one of our vehicles our news vehicles did have phones that worked we had car phones and then we had satellite phones that worked you know from our microwave trucks and satellite trucks um because it was very hard to get information back and forth even when you're filing a story or you have an update i i want to get to the point where you know so this is going on now for almost two months no sign of Polly. no matter all these leads they're really not leading to anyone i want to talk about one more encounter for richard allen davis who actually ultimately gets arrested before he is arrested in connection with this he has yet another encounter with police doesn't he oh my god can you imagine can you imagine the killer among them twice twice talked to cops please explain what happened
0: Right. He was pulled over for a, a DUI and he was briefly put in the drunk tank. And when he sobered up, they let him go. I can't. Yeah. I can't.
1: Yeah, at the what time. What was the misstep there, Kim? Do you think? And what was the time frame of when that happened?
0: You know, I'd have to look at my timeline, but it was oh right. It was it was some weeks after her abduction and it was kind of in the middle um you know of that that 60 64 65 day time frame amazing and it's shocking it, to me yeah right right but i think again the systems of different agencies didn't talk to one another and even though this this sketch that really resembled him done by Gene boylan um th- you know people th- the connection wasn't made so that that was that was really unfortunate
1: It's extraordinary. It's just extraordinary. So let's get to where there is the real break in the case. The break in the case comes from the same woman, you know, whose property had been breached by the killer with, you know, the woman who has the car stuck. Mm -hmm. She takes a walk on her property and she discovers what looks like some children's clothing and some other items. I'll let you pick it up from there.
0: Right. So she's walking her property, look, looking at some tree cutting that had been done. And she stumbles upon this little cluster of suspicious items. And there was a pair of little girls' red tights that were where the legs were kind of tied in a knot, and there was some hair in the knot. There was a black men's size sweatshirt that's turned inside out. There was a condom unrolled and a condom wrapper that had been opened. And then there was uh, some white bindings that had looked like they had been cut from a uh, a woman's nylon slip was kind of the silky material that they appeared to have been cut from. And so she immediately thinks about Polly and thinks like, this This looks like a crime scene. And so she calls the sheriff's department and by the time someone comes out, it's uh, the, the the next morning and it's raining. And uh, the deputy gathers the items because he doesn't want the rain to cause um, the evidence to spoil and brings them into the station. And then someone says, you better call Petaluma. And so um, a detective who had been in Polly's room on the night of the kidnapping, Larry Pelton, comes out to Sonoma and takes one look and sees the, the white ligatures and recognizes the material as you know virtually identical to the material of the bindings that had been used to tie Kate and Jillian's wrists. And he thinks, oh, I've I've looked at so much evidence that just, you know, didn't have anything to do with it. And I'm pretty sure this is related. So um that sets the wheels in motion and things start happening very quickly. So the FBI gets a hold of this. Um, someone actually gets on a plane and flies it to the, the lab, which at the time was Hold in- on,
1: you've got to tell the story of how right. that happens because that to me is the most incredible story, right? So the these items have got to be sent to the FBI lab. These mm-hmm. are the items that were found on the lady's property that we later find out did belong to Polly and to the killer. Okay. Okay. So they're in a suitcase or some, right? right? Yep. Okay. Explain how, how the agent is trying to take this on the plane to keep chain of custody physically, like on the plane and ask, can I put it on a seat so I can watch it?
0: Right, so they're actually so an, um, an FBI agent and an evidence response team technician named David Alford had already booked a flight to uh, DC to to carry back other evidence related to another prime suspect or another guy who they thought was the closest thing they had to a prime suspect. That's in the book; you can read about it. But he was already on his way, and um, he got a call. Why don't you come by Pythian Road and pick up this new evidence? And so he has too much evidence to fit into the carry on situation. And so they said, we're gonna to have to put it in the, the cargo hold. And he is like, well, I, I have to maintain chain of custody. So they allow him to go down and load the evidence into the cargo hold of the plane. He shuts the door and he puts a piece of evidence or a crime scene tape over the door. And then when they land, he's the first one off the plane and he goes down and takes the ev- the, the tape off and then retrieves the evidence. Is that
1: incredible? Is that like the most, to me, this, this, how can I put this? This, this investigation has such horrible lows, like all the missed clues. And then it has like a moment of brilliance of this. It's like, I am getting this evidence there. No one is going to challenge me on the chain of custody on this one, you know, and got the workaround to get the evidence there. Right.
0: So in the FBI lab, um, one of the lab technicians takes the, the ligatures. He already had ligatures there that had been taken from Kate and Jillian's room. And he takes these new ligatures from another crime scene and, and lines them up and they line up the jagged edges. They had been cut with scissors and they that the edges were jagged. They line up like puzzle pieces. Mm. So it's a instant physical match. And of course they did microscopic analysis and the fibers matched as well.
1: Because there but, was no DNA back then. Let's remember that too. Not like we have now. Like we have today.
0: Um, there was one, one piece of, um, evidence that came out of the rug and it was a human hair and the hair had a root sheath on it. And that root sheath was evidence of, uh, consistent with a hair that had been forcibly removed. And because of the little bit of skin in the root sheath, that was enough for a little bit of DNA testing, whereas getting DNA at the time from a hair was, was very hard, um, or if not impossible, I can't remember, but it, it was highly unlikely to get DNA from just a hair at the time with the technology they had. The other great piece of, um, you know, forensic work that was done was on the palm print. Yes. So on the night of Polly's kidnapping, um, the Petaluma police called in the FBI and they sent out the first... FBI evidence response team in the country, ever in the FBI. And it was newly minted, and this was their first major case. And and the technicians who worked on this case were the ones who conceived of this new model. It really changed, as Tony Maxwell, um, who lifted the palm print, said, this changed the way the FBI does business. So before this case, uh, whenever there was a crime scene, they would send out an evidence technician from D.C., And they were in the time that it would take them to fly across the country to get to a crime scene, trace evidence would spoil or disappear. And trace evidence included things like hair and fibers, um, palm prints, things that you can't see with the naked eye. Well, Tony Maxwell was one of the um, pioneers of the evidence response team who said we need we, we can't wait for them. We need to have local teams who are trained in these same procedures who can get there within minutes or hours and start collecting trace evidence before it disappears. And Tony had um, taken it upon himself to borrow um, a forensic light source. It was at the time called an alternate light source, or ALS, and fluorescent powder. These were technologies that were so new that the FBI didn't even own them. He had borrowed a unit, and at the time they were something like $10,000, very expensive. And
1: Petaluma police didn't have this either.
0: Oh no, it was was something that police just dusted with standard black powder, but Fluorescent powder was made of something different and with an alternate light source, which is kind of like a laser that can be tuned to different, different temperatures of light, um, you can pick up prints that were um, that, that would be missed with standard black powder. And children's fingerprints in particular are more sensitive and they're easier to miss. And so after the Petaluma detectives had dusted with standard black powder all of Polly's room the FBI team came came in and they picked up 48 prints that were missed by the standard black powder. One of those prints was not accounted for by um, you know ruling it out, by matching it with someone who had been in Polly's room. And they, it was a partial palm print. And so, of course, um, at the time, they didn't have this, this database of fingerprints and palm prints that, that we have today. And so you had to wait till you had a suspect and then you had to compare the suspect's palm print, the inked print to the, the print. Well, Tony um, you know, found this on Polly's bed frame. So she had a wooden bed frame and there was this palm print on the wood. And he um he found it with this this new technology. And when he saw it, something about it stood out in his mind. And he said bingo. He wrote bingo in the evidence log. And so that kind of sat at the lab for two months while they waited for a suspect. So Go going back to David and Jaffe, finding the su- suspicious items. So when that happened, then She she recalled to them there was a trespasser on my property the night Polly was kidnapped. They went and looked at the field incident report and found his his name and his his license plate and they they then had his identity. Then they traced him to where he was staying. He was staying at his sister's house in Ukiah, and they actually had this SWAT raid that most people don't know about. I don't I don't think it was is you know heavily reported, but. There was a SWAT raid and two FBI SWAT teams and one Petaluma PD SWAT team descend on this house and he's not there. And there's this moment of like, how did we miss him? The surveillance was on the house. Well, right at that moment when they realized he's not here, they had set up a perimeter around, um, it was on the Coyote Valley Rancheria, which was a American Indian reservation at the time. Where they were, they were squatters. They were not members of the tribe. They were they were you know living in a house on the reservation. So they had created this perimeter around um, you know, where they were having the, the SWAT raid. And right at that moment, this van pulls up to the outer perimeter and Richard Allen Davis is inside of it. And so um they they zip down and arrest him, take him into custody.
1: But they still so- don't have the the palm print. Like I love the way they found the palm print and right. they didn't even know. That there had been a match because you literally had to go through his rap sheet and you had to call every single jurisdiction wherever he had ever been arrested and say do you have a palm print of the guy and most of the time they didn't they just had fingerprints exactly and one One of my favorite moments of reporting was no one could remember
0: where the inked palm print had come from that they used to match with the one that had been lifted from polly's room and i before he was arrested for this exactly right. right So they, they needed to go and look at his prior arrests and find a palm print. And that was hard to find because, as you said, most of the time they took only fingerprints. Well, the officer, the detective who actually located the print, didn't even know he was the one who found it. His name is Andy Mazzanti, and he did a, a full workup on Davis and called around every agency that had arrested him. But his, his grandfather had passed away. And so he, he left after putting the call into Stanislaw County, um, where they did find the print. And the next day he was on bereavement leave when it, it must have you know, come in by fax or something. And so he didn't know until I called Stanislaw County and tracked it down. He didn't know he was the one who found the matching print. So um, this this happens and it gets published in the newspaper. Print links Davis to Polly's bedroom. Davis is incarcerated in Mendocino County Jail, and he doesn't know this has happened because he can't see the news. Because so he's been picked happened. up on a parole violation. Exactly. They arrested him on based on a parole violation. Um, and then when he was in custody, they started interviewing him and he invoked his Miranda rights. So this is another thing that I don't think has has been reported. Um, so once once, you know, they invoke their right to remain silent, you can't legally ask them anything about the case. You can talk about the weather, about the prison food, but you can't talk about the case. So this is when something happens that is a stroke of luck. Um there is a man somewhere um, south of San Francisco who sees the news about the palm print, recognizes Davis because his picture is now in the news and says, I I used to work with that guy. Uh, his name was Marvin White, and he had employed Davis as a sheet metal worker because he employed people who had just recently gotten out of prison t- to help them incorporate back into a society.
1: A very so, Bay Area kind of thing. <laughs> right. <So laughs> Marvin White. You know, calls uh, Mendocino County
0: Jail and says, "Can I can I see him?" And they said, "Yeah, but you better get going because visiting hours are short." He drives to Mendocino, shows up at the jail and says, "Can I speak to Davis?" And the the guys at Mendocino Jail call Eddie, the FBI agent, my my father in law, and say, "There's a guy here. He wants to talk to Davis. What should we do?" And he says, "Well, let him in. We'll we'll talk to him after." And this is important because had Eddie intercepted Marvin White before he talked to Davis, then what happened in that meeting might not have been admissible in court. But it's very important because Marvin White goes in and he talks to Davis and he tells Davis, they found your palm print in her bedroom. And Davis sort of nods, doesn't say much. And then Marvin leaves. Well, that's when Davis knows they've got him. And this knowledge, I think, changes the future course of things. This is a- Because he wants
1: to cut some kind of deal. This guy knows. Right. He thinks,
0: okay, because not his first radio. He's been in prison most of his adult life. So right after Margaret White leaves, um, FBI agent Larry Taylor and Detective Mike Meese from Petaluma stop by. Just by coincidence, they they stop by to roll a set of fresh prints, palm prints. And so in the hallway after rolling the prints, Mike Meese says, you know, can't, can't ask him anything about the case, but just says, hey, just so you know, it's. It's still just a kidnapping. If you know where she is and you wanna talk to us about it, have them call me. And then he leaves. Well, um, you know, not long after that, later that day, he gets paged by Mendocino Jail. Davis wants to talk. So they come back to the jail, and that's when they do what um what I call the confession tape or the confession interview. Greg Jacobs always corrects me and say, No, it's an admission, not a confession. But in this interview, it's like two hours long, Davis admits to having killed Polly. He does not want to admit to having sexually assaulted her though. This is very important to him that he doesn't get branded as a child molester. And he offers to lead them to the body, which he does that night. They go and he leads them to Cloverdale to the place where he he, he left her body. And then um, my father-in-law has to walk out into the field and he's under pressure from supervisors to make the call because the media is waiting. The par- parents have been called in. Everyone wants to know is this Polly? and he um lifts a piece of plywood, and what he sees he can't definitively tell, but he has to make a call. and he makes a call that if he had been wrong, it probably would have cost him his career.
1: Yeah,
0: but he and he said, this is Polly class. And so that's when, um that's when, you know, some some really poignant moments happened that I got to hear about from the investigators. So Tony Maxwell, who had lifted the print, is a very, very spiritual guy. And he, um, you know, he he cried when he recounted um this this story and these emotions. And so many of actually like half, I would say about half of the investigators, the detectives and agents I interviewed wept when they told me about um, their involvement in this case. But Tony remembers going out, you know, they had a little cordoned off a, a place where they had walked through the field and flagged it because you wanted to not walk over evidence. But he um, sort of sat down next to Polly and said, um, you know, we found you. We're bringing you home because he knew that she was afraid of the dark and that she didn't like strangers. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, it it's it's a really um, it's a really sad moment for everyone realizing like we found her, but we didn't find her the way we hoped.
1: No, I am curious about something. So Richard Allen Davis leads authorities to Polly's body. And the only person who would know that would be the kidnapper killer. Mm -hmm. Yet there was still a trial. Right. So once Davis invoked his Miranda rights, he
0: had the right not to answer any more questions. Um, When by calling Mike Meese and Larry Taylor back and reopening the conversation, he waived his Miranda rights, a very rare exception to the Miranda rule. And so that's what made that admission admissible in court. And that's really, really
1: important. Yet there was still a trial mm-hmm. because he ins- he then insists on entering a, um, a plea of innocence because of course, the death penalty would have been an issue at the time.
0: Right. One of the things that he wanted to bargain for by agreeing to lead them to the body was uh, he wanted to ask for life without, life without the possibility of parole instead of the death penalty. And-
1: Couldn't the, that have been negotiated? Did we need a trial? I'm curious. Well, it was something that he he asked when he
0: called Mike Meese, he said, can you call the DA and ask if I can get life without? And Meese says, life without what? And he says, life without parole. And so he, Mike Meese called the DA and did get permission to offer life without, uh, in, in, you know, as opposed to the death penalty, if he agreed to lead them to the body. Well, as Davis is sitting down and waving, you know, reopening the the conversation, he starts to say, what did the DA say? In that moment, Larry Taylor, the FBI agent who was there, and Larry doesn't know, he he doesn't know if this was just a stroke of genius or just dumb luck, but at that moment he said, wait, whoa, 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 We we gotta sign these Miranda waiver forms. And he redirects his attention to some paperwork, and then he forgets to ask again, and so they never have to offer him life without. So then, when it does go to trial, he does get, char- you know, the death penalty is is um, is an option.
1: Yeah, and he was sentenced to death, and yes. has been on death row the whole time because um, the current governor of California has stayed the executions uh, in California. Mm-hmm. So, but the case doesn't end there. Mm-hmm. The case doesn't end there. In the sense that, well, t- two things happen. You know, we've talked about the amazing effect that mm-hmm. Polly's case has had mm-hmm. to hopefully save other victims and survivors. Mm-hmm. Right. We've seen that in the changes in protocol. We've seen the power of a family as an as advocates for their own families suffering and for those of others. So, so we see that Richard Allen Davis. Okay. Mm -hmm. Disgusting human being, no question about it. Mm -hmm. What was his problem with Polly's dad? So aggressive in the courtroom. Yeah. And it's sentencing. Does anyone have any insight into that? Um, I think it's believed that,
0: you know, Polly's dad was very vocal in everything, you know, everything that a dad who had gone through what he had gone through would feel and want to say to the person who had done it, to his daughter. You know, he um, he didn't hold back in talking uh, about how he felt about Davis to the press. And Davis, you know, paid attention to the press. And I can only imagine that, that, that that's one of the reasons. But yeah, Davis was exceptionally cruel to Mark and really did some things that twisted the knife that are just unthinkable. Um, and I think the thing that everyone remembers, well, first, when when he was found guilty, he stood up and um, flipped the double bird. And there's a picture of that that will forever remain in the archives. Um, and then there was to a, the family. A... I mean, it wasn't to the judge. It depends on who you ask. Um, it wasn't at the jury. The jury didn't see it. Um, Barry Collins, the, the defense attorney. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barry, Barry said it wasn't at the family. It was more just at the world, at the media. Mm-hmm. But um I I wonder about that, you know, Um, but the the other thing that people remember is um, when they after they they gave him the death penalty, he was um, offered the chance to like, do you have anything to say? Do you want to make a statement? And he said something along the lines of, you know, for whatever it's worth, I want to apologize to certain members of Polly's family, her mother, her sister. Um, But I'm, I'm trying to remember this verbatim. You know, he said the reason I know I didn't molest her was as i was going up on the hill she said don't do me like my daddy did and that's when just mark went nuts and lunged for him and had to be pulled out of the courtroom and just you know horrible right just so oh, cruel oh he
1: just i mean mark just erupted and just yeah lunged for him bailiffs have to get him out of the courtroom Every, it was just it was just shocking and it was yes that dagger in the heart and just added Something even more vile to the entire thing. Right. It's just such a horrible case, and I don't. And I know we've only skimmed the surface. I know there's so much more in your book. Um, as as we're wrapping up here, Kim, um, is there one thing that you want us all to understand about this, or or some one thing that you just want to make sure that you've shared with us about this case, or what you found, or how you feel about it? Absolutely. And it's the legacy of this case.
0: It's still being taught 30 years later as a case study to train future investigators. And because of the lessons learned during this case, so many lives have been saved. So many changes were made that improved how we search for and find missing people, how the FBI solves crimes. And that legacy is really important. And um, at the end of the book, you'll, you'll meet a girl who was 12 years old, a few months after Polly, kidnapped, by a stranger from her house, by a knife wielding person who came into her house and took her. And because of what was learned and what was shared in a debriefing by investigators who worked on this case, who invited other investigators to come and say, here's what we learned from this. Because of that, she is alive. And you'll meet her at the end of the book. And I got to invite her and the police chief who saved her life to um, our book launch event in Petaluma, where we had a two and a half hour symposium We had twenty primary sources and characters from the book come and tell their story, and she got to basically say, "I'm alive because of Polly." And she has a she's a mother now. She has a little girl, and she has a button that I think Mark gave her of the Polly class button that everyone was wearing. And sometimes I had one. Yeah, she looks at the button is like, "Polly, I'm 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 here because of you," and I think that's you know. Um, a lot of the investigators and people who were involved said, like, if one life could be saved because of this, then Polly didn't die in vain. And, um, you know, nothing will change the tragedy of how she was lost. Nothing will make it less sad. But there's great meaning um, in, in understanding what happened after and what was learned and what was done with that. And that's what I think is makes the book worth reading, is you get to appreciate the legacy and how it is still... At work today, the Class Foundation is one of the rare nonprofits started in the wake of a tragedy like this that is still going strong today. And they've evolved their mission mm-hmm. from you know they they've helped the families of ten thousand missing people in the last thirty years, um, but now they're not so much focused on casework because the need for it seems to be decreasing. Now they're working on proactive programming that teaches kids the dangers of um, interacting with people on the internet because strangers can come into kids' bedrooms today through the internet. So now they're trying to prevent abductions from happening in the first place by teaching kids. And it really doesn't even cost much to have them come and do a school program at your school. And so I would just say like the legacy is still going strong. The Polyclass Foundation just raised a million dollars during COVID to open a hundred year old church and renovate it as a community theater to honor how Polly lived. She loved to act and now kids come and sing and dance and act on the stage. And it's a testimonial or a testament to, you know, to, to the power of Polly class in her memory. And, um, I think that she is still changing lives today.
1: Kim, it has just been such a pleasure to talk with you, your insight, what you've accomplished here by telling this case in such a human, but accurate way, thank you. Um, just, just amazing, just amazing. And um, wh- where can people um, find your book? Where can they find you and follow you? Um, just everything about you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, well, you can find the book anywhere books are sold. The audio book just came out. Great narrator. Um, if you want to sign a signed copy, go to Copperfields Books. Copperfields in Petaluma um, supported my my launch event. And it's super special because Copperfields is actually housed in the storefront in Petaluma that once housed the Volunteer Center in
1: 1990. No. Oh, my yeah. God. That's so amazing.
0: Special. Make a donation to the Polyclass Foundation. They are entirely funded by donations. They don't get any government funding and they are still going strong today. Um, if you wanna find me, you can find me on kimhcross.com or at kimhcross on Instagram. And um, yeah, I, I thank you for this time and thank you for the reporting that you did in 1993 because this was a really important story. And I can imagine that this you know, was an experience that forged you into the journalist you are today.
1: I. I try to think of, um, I I say this often about why I care about crime reporting and it's because I always learn something from the survivors and the victims and their families. I learn about healing, Mm -hmm. compassion, processing trauma, the challenges of forgiveness and what justice means. Mm -hmm. And, um... Every single one of those personal experiences for me has taught me something, and they have impacted my life. I don't think I can ever be as strong or as compassionate as they are, especially with forgiving. Right. But I learn something every single time. And what I learn and what I take is goodness, it's positive. You know it, it doesn't make up for the fact that
0: i don't like the i don't like it when people say everything happens for a reason oh god of, no i mean come on but i do like the the thought that beautiful things come from our brokenness um sometimes in spite of them and sometimes even because them because of them and um you know the things that tear our world apart reveal what holds us together and that's i think the the theme of all of my work and that's the theme of this book and you can see that um horrible things happen and somehow some way people manage to carry on and endure them and and grow and give and help other people because of them and that's that's one of the beautiful you know parts of the human condition
1: it's the inspiration yeah yeah, yeah. well kim this has been such a pleasure um we're just so thrilled to have had you um and it was very meaningful for me personally um this episode and all episodes of our podcasts are available wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel, to our website. Um, as we always say, until next time, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And remember, don't do crime.